The thing that kind of drives me along is receiving letters from people who have said that our cake has really changed their life or it's got them through a really heavy time in their life. Um, people who have been studying who you know come here every second day just to get that piece of cake to get them through people who um, you know have got loved ones in the hospital up the road um, those letters are really what really what make it worth it for me this is the deep in the weeds podcast i'm anthony huckstep restaurants cafes bakeries are not just about the business of feeding people They're not just about the business of experiences, of taking people out of their everyday and bringing joy. They're also about connections, how food can be the conduit in so many relationships across the country, across the globe. The relationships formed between diners and hospitality professionals is not one that's often talked about, but those connections run deep and are prolific. Nadine Ingram is the owner of Flower and Stone in Woolloomooloo, Sydney. Nadine, how are you going? I'm good. How are you, Anthony? I'm good. You're one of Australia's very best artisan bakers with a cult following. Um, what's, what's it been like creating um, your own brand and, and product and having such a, uh, an amazing response from customers? Well, it's been wonderful, of course. I mean, I don't think anybody could deny that, um, but it's been quite a journey uh, along the way. Um, I guess coming back from London uh, after being equipped with a set of clever recipes and skills, I thought that that's all I'd need to run a business. (laughs) (laughs) And I couldn't have been further from the truth. Well, let's go back to those early days before we look at the success that you've had and sort of what you do and the challenges involved in that. Um, you were a pastry chef um, a few months ago and you ventured over to London. What started uh, your interest in pastry? Well, I guess um, I still am a pastry chef um, and always will be, but I guess my love for baking started um when I was young, uh, I grew up in the country and I guess baking became my connection to those around me. Um, I found that, you know, that I was quite good at it and that that was that initial connection that I discovered through baking. Um, and then after I'd finished my apprenticeship in the Hunter Valley, I wanted to pursue it on a, on a more professional basis. So I went to London and and worked in a few really good restaurants over there. Take us to that time. What was it like in London? Was it a bit of a shock compared to what you had experienced so far in Australia so early on in your career? Oh, pretty. It was pretty heady culture, um, working in London kitchens. I'd just come from the Hunter Valley in Pocolbin, and so it was pretty chilled there. Um, I'd never lived in Sydney before I went to London, so straight from a small country town and landed in the middle of Mayfair at La Gavroche and walked around the block about 10 times before I had the courage to walk in. Um, It it was much the same as Australia in terms of the uh, ratio of men to women in the kitchens. Um, There was only a couple of women and probably about 30 men in that first kitchen that I stepped into. 
um, men from all over the continent. Um, it was just a totally different culture uh, that I hadn't experienced before, and, and one that I had to one that I had to figure out a way of uh, moving through, so to speak, and surviving in. Um, I think what I learnt from the men in that kitchen was um, all about camaraderie and the kind of the banter in the kitchen. Um, but unfortunately, um, I guess I was confused about what feminism meant and I, you know, adopted some of the worst attributes of men to survive in their world. Um, yeah, so that, a few kitchens like that in London before I went to the Ivy and um, met Jeremy King and Chris Corbin and they kind of showed me a different way of different way of working and they've kind of instilled a lot of people and culture aspects and philosophies to the way that I run my own business now that I'm really grateful for. I don't know where I'd be if I hadn't, if I hadn't worked for them. What, what drew you back to Australia? Uh, I guess I was homesick. Um, the initial time that I came back from London, I guess my visa just came to fruition, came back to Sydney. Um, I'd met my husband over there, we got married, and then we kind of realised shortly after that that we couldn't adjust back into the laid-back Sydney Australian way of life. And so we went back to London again um, and back into those kitchens. Um, it became become quite addictive. Um, and then the second time we came back was because I just had my oldest daughter. So we came back to Australia because I missed family. You ended up in the um, kitchens of MG Garage, which had an amazing um, period of time in our uh, culinary history and with some amazing chefs in there. And tell us, tell us about that period of time and the changes that you were experiencing with your career. Well, uh, Jeremy Strode was probably the first chef that I'd ever worked for that treated me like an equal. Um, so that was quite surprising um, after working in all those kitchens in London. And with him being English as well, I just expected him to be the same as all the rest. Um, I'd, as you know, MG Garage was just around the corner from Burke Street at the time and I was spending quite a lot, lot of time at Burke Street Bakery on my way to MG Garage every morning. Um, yeah, things unfolded at MG Garage. Um, the business closed um, for, for lots of reasons, but I guess having spent some time around the corner at, at um, Burke Street Bakery, I wanted to go and see what it was like to work in that different environment. And it was a real turning point for me because the satisfaction of baking in an actual bakery is polar opposites to working in a restaurant where you're usually the first one in and the last one out in a restaurant. And a lot of the times people don't order desserts. And so everyone knows Burke Street was wildly successful and there was lots of baking going on and it was just so satisfying. So that was a real turning point for me. 
Bourke Street Bakery was a, was an influence for you and that connection. Tell us about um, your theories and the importance of the connection with consumers for, for what you do. Well, I guess having worked in restaurants before, I'd always been stuck out the back or in a basement or and I couldn't actually see or, or touch the customers. And being at Bourke Street, um, it gave me an opportunity to see them and and get the feedback and kind of see the joy. And, and that's always been the end game for me ever since, seeing the customer's reaction to what we bake. Flower and Stone, as we sort of I briefly touched on at the top of the show, um, has impacted so many people with the extraordinary products that you offer. Tell us about the beginnings of, of Flower and Stone and, and how you built the confidence to start your own business like that. Well, I guess having worked at Burke Street um, gave me the confidence. Um, I certainly learned a lot of tenacity from, from David and Paul as to what I was capable of. Um, but again, I, th- I was naive to think that the recipes that I'd collected over the years and the skills that I had would be enough. Um, it was quite difficult in the beginning. Uh, for the first eight, 18 months, and 18 months is such a long time in business, I'd wondered had I done the right thing. Um, but I was just so adamant that we had to keep baking every day with abundance and just fill that counter and have it overflowing so that we could almost create this illusion that lots of people were coming. Um, And also, (laughs) it was crazy, huh? Um, And then psychologically, to realize that people need to see an abundant counter to know that they're safe. Um, And the philosophy really came back to me last year as well during COVID. We just continued to fill that counter every day as if nothing was happening so that the customers would know everything was going to be okay. Um, And that was the main priority for me back in the beginning. Everything's going to be all right. We're all in this together. Um, And whilst I continued to do that, it was still very difficult until um, Gourmet Traveller came along and they offered me a six-page spread with some recipes in the magazine. And that really went a lot of the way to turning the business around. And in those recipes, I kind of wrote an introduction, the beginning of all of them, telling people what those recipes meant to me and how baking had always been for joy and love and sorrow. And people really, that really resonated with people. And, and then again, this is this connection that I keep talking about with people. Um, and yeah, and it was no turning back from there. Can you tell us about some of those recipes and that connection that you have that you know, you mentioned that you bake for joy or for sorrow for those different reasons? Do you, do you have mm. some examples of moments in time and recipes that have import, been important in that way? Yeah, well, one of the recipes um, that springs to mind is the Manjari, the Madagascan Manjari cake that we still have on the menu now. And that recipe was given to me by my head chef when I was an apprentice Um, way back in the Hunter Valley and we'd used the best chocolate we could find for it but this particular time I'd started making it at Burke Street Bakery and one of the uh, baristas there her grandfather had recently passed away and she said she really loved that cake and 
could we make that cake using um, the Milky Way bars that were left on his bedside table when he passed? He just loved chocolate. And so we used those Milky Way bars to make the same cake that we use Valrona, Madagascan chocolate. <laughs> and it was just as joyous as, as if we'd made it with 70% Kovacha chocolate. It was amazing. Um, all because of the intention that went into that cake. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about the joy, the love and the sorrow. Well, cake does bring a lot of happiness to a lot of people, but um, as you mentioned, there's been challenges involved running the business and also uh, running being a baker. Can you take us through what it's like being a baker in the average day, the good and bad days? Well, I mean, it starts quite early. Um, 3 a.m.'s our early start now. Um, we always started at 3 a.m. in the beginning, and then after a while I realised it wasn't sustainable uh, for my team. I was losing staff, and we had to reconfigure our systems so that we could incorporate an afternoon bake and then start no, not until 5 most mornings now. So that was really instrumental in... Um, in making the working conditions better uh, for the bakery. Um, I guess these days holding a team together, especially during COVID last year, has been the biggest challenge that's come along for me and my business in the last nine years. Um, that, uh, just a little bit of backstory, I guess, if um, people aren't aware, we opened up another annex last year in collaboration with our original bakery it's just two doors down and the whole premise of this space was to create a takeaway outlet because we got so busy that the takeaway was encroaching on the dining customers and and vice versa and we needed to separate those customers and also we were running out of space out the back as well to bake we were on top of one another it became a safety hazard. And so we opened this takeaway space in February last year. Um, it couldn't have been more timely um, with COVID upon us just a month later. Um, so in preparation for that change, I'd already focused on a little bit of uh, change facilitation with my team and the fear surrounding that and so I was lucky that my team were all already primed for change to a certain extent, certainly not what happened last year. We had no idea that was going to happen. Um, but the change, the change facilitation, the, the work on fear and, and mental health really helped. You mentioned the changes that were needed for last year and um, there's, there's many bakeries across, across the country that did experience an uplift in sales um, as lockdown sort of came in, what was, what was the experience for you and, and, and has the way um, what you do and deliver, has that changed over the last year because of what happened? Well, I have to say um, with the greatest humility that we, this business has thrived um, in the last year um, and it's all because people need cake in times of need. It's just... <laughs> It's just a fact. Um, I know that for us, it changed a little bit in that I needed to focus our 
on train together so we did that, that that would be projected outwards towards the customers and hopefully they would pick up on that energy um, there was so much fear and anxiety around last year um, our jobs became about trying to assess each customer as they came in the door as to their anxiety and fear levels and that is a lot to ask a team to do <laughs> it was massive how have you dealt with uh, your staff and yourself in regards to the mental health within the industry? You sort of mentioned um, your time early on in London and um, the large percentage of males in the industry. How, can you compare mm. the, sort of those times um, compared to now and, and dealing with that? Well, I try not to be influenced by gender when I'm employing people, but I do like to offset that kitchen culture that's existed over the years by the fact that I want to empower women and women from all sorts of professions as well into uh, staying in baking and more to the point trying to create an environment and flexibility where they can do so. Um, that's really, really my main focus um, and everybody gets to benefit from that, not just women. Um, I just, yeah, I really want to make it easy for people to, to keep baking and keep connecting with people. Flower and Stone is uh, named for both of your daughters and uh, the name is written in your grandmother's script above the front door. Yes, it is. Tell us about the connections there to family with, with the business. Well, my grandparents um, are probably my biggest influences. Um, I grew up with them for for the most part until I went off to London um, and so yeah their, their influence was massive um, I like to create um, this work-life blend and so my girls are also very involved in the business as well my youngest daughter works out the front on a Saturday um, and my oldest daughter used to work at the markets so the business has really been for the family as well over these years. You mentioned that your grandparents lived on a farm. Um, can you take us back to that time, what it was like growing up and the influence of food on your early childhood? Well, I mean, everything that we ate came from the land um, around us. Um, it was very simple food. Um, there wasn't a celebratory nature to the food like there is now. Um, I like to celebrate food now, but not, not so much back then. I think I've learnt that over the years. Um, just knowing where our food came from and knowing that it was organic and we just really took it for granted. I think it's a lot different now. I think people need to start um, learning how to grow their own vegetables because, you know, we're going to run out of water and we're going to need to know how to do it. So that was a great learning lesson for me. You have some fantastic relationships with producers. Um, why are these relationships so important to you and to what you do? I like the producers to be able to weave their story through ours and, and vice versa. Um, I would always choose a smaller producer, um, you know, Pepe Sayer or Simon from Brickfields, for instance, over a larger one. Um, I just like um, having that communication and the connection to a smaller producer. Tell us a bit about 
baking when you're baking and you're in that moment and um, what, what creates um, that special sort of result at the end? I guess it's just opening your opening your senses, um, using your intuition to bake with and yeah, and just being open to the transcendent transcendent nature of a piece of cake um, and realizing that the joy that you're going to be giving people with that when it gets to the other side of the counter. I think that's what it's all about for me. That's the end game. You mentioned the um, premises that you took a couple of doors up and the importance of, of that. Um, do, you, do you have some more plans given uh, the last year and the fact that you have had a good uplift in trade? Is there some something on the horizon that you can talk about? Well, my focus has always been to try and remain small. Um, I have no ambition to grow any bigger than what we're at at the moment. In fact, having just moved into the second space down the road last February, I think we're almost at capacity with what we're doing now. Um, so the focus for me over the coming years is to just try and uh, maintain the standard and, and keep us at that size. Um, and really focus on um, the team and the training and, and and the purpose because it's all useless without that. The impact on the industry has been monumental, um, more so abroad than in Australia, but there's no doubt that we'll see um, the fallout, particularly when JobKeeper ends um, soon. What's your thoughts on, on the hospitality industry and some of the positives that can come out of what's just happened? Well, from what I've seen, I guess it's it's encouraged people to be more creative with the way they do things. And for the most part, I think people are saying that it's been really positive for their business. Um, you know, I've there's restaurateurs that I speak to and they're now putting in fixed price set menus because the fact is then they can allocate a spend per person they know how many covers they've got booked that night. And so it's making the management of coming out of COVID a whole lot easier, knowing what their cash flow is going to be. Um, for us, it's enabled us to take a step back um, and go, okay, we've got two spaces now. In the beginning, they weren't initially working that well together. Um, maybe we'd stretched ourselves a little bit too much. Um, so we've paired back our dine-in arrangement just to Thursday, Friday, Saturday now, and that's working mm -hmm. really well. Our customers are loving it, and it gives me enough contingency front of house with the roster so that people aren't depleted by the end of the week. So that's why it's been advantageous for us. You've mentioned a, a couple of products and recipes that you've held on to from the various uh, mentors or venues that you've worked at over the years, but what's what's some of the creations that you've uh, come up with that um, that you're really proud of? Uh, well, I'm, pro I'm pretty proud of the Lemington, the Panna Cotta Lemington. Um, yeah, oh, it's hard to talk, talk humbly about something that you've created. <laughs> um, well, can you give us a, give us a sense of how, of how to make it and what it is? Okay. Um, the panna cotta lemington's uh, a sponge which we soak in panna cotta and then set it overnight. Um, it's got seeds of vanilla through it 
and then we sandwiched the layers of sponge and panna cotta with a berry compote in between. I was adamant that it had to be a compote with whole berries and not just a jam. Um, and then we cut them into little cubes and, and coat them in a really dark chocolate. But I guess it's all about the three textures of coconut around the outside as well. Um, I mm. think that really sets it apart. Um, also, the fact that it's not dry and stale like most Lemmingtons generally works in its favour. As um, someone who's far better cook uh, with savoury foods than um, baking things, is there, is there any sort of tips for um, those that could do with some help in uh, the kitchen in regards to desserts and pastries? Uh, well, of course, I think anyone can bake. Um, I know a lot of people would argue with me, um, but I think just reading the recipe twice is probably the best advice I can give people. Just sit down with a cup of tea, mm. relax, read the recipe twice and really get your head around everything before you even start embarking on a recipe. Um, the second thing would be just to follow your intuition and your senses. Um, they're the best skills that you've got, um, your senses. Um, and if you can awaken those, then, yeah, you're destined for success with baking, I think. At the top of the show, we talked a bit about the relationships formed with uh, consumers um, for those in the hospitality industry. Has there been some really uh, interesting relationships formed with some of your clients uh, and customers that you can tell us about? Yeah, I guess one of the most satisfying things about the job and the thing that kind of drives me along is receiving letters from people who have said that our cake has really changed their life or it's got them through a really heavy time in their life. Um, people who have been studying who, you know, come here every second day just to get that piece of cake to get them through. People who, um, you know, have got loved ones in the hospital up the road, um, you know, who have got cancer or something. Um, those letters are really what, really what make it worth it for me. Well, Nadine, uh, your products are amazing, and so is so is your passion and your commitment. Uh, it's it's bloody inspiring, and we're very honoured to have you on Deep in the Weeds today. Thanks, Anthony. Please keep in touch, and uh, we'll catch up with you again soon. We'll do. Thanks very much for having me on. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPO community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>